We welcome all of you who are joining us online, also those of you who are meeting together here at Central Campus, and those of you who are also meeting together at our, one of our other campuses in uh, Northwest Calgary and Airdrie, uh, down in Bridgeland, and also in South Calgary. Before I get into my message, I, I just want to thank you uh, for your expressions of love and encouragement and prayers for me and my family as we embark on another faith adventure with our Lord. And I just want to say, because um, our God is a good God, uh, I'm doing real good. And I just want you to know that. So this weekend, we're continuing in our series in 1 John. And if you've been tracking with us, you may remember that the Apostle John wrote this particular letter in part to address false teaching that was infiltrating the early church about what it means to be a Christian. And this resulted in some of the believers being confused uh, and lacking assurance that they were Christians at all. And so in addition to confronting false teaching, John also spells out what it means to be an authentic follower of Christ. In the early part uh, of 1 John, Uh, He essentially says that Christ's followers believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, that he lived, taught profound truths, performed amazing miracles, died on the cross, rose on the third day, appearing not only to his disciples, but also to more than 500 people at the same time. However, Christ's followers don't just believe these things about Jesus, They also believe in Jesus. They cult a growing friendship with him. And together with other Christians in his church that he's establishing, they seek to live like Jesus. Which brings us to the passage we're looking at today, beginning in uh, verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3, where John emphasizes that true Christians not only seek to live like Jesus, but also to love like Jesus. Now, because our study in 1 John, uh, for various reasons, has been spread out over the last nine months, it's important that I remind us again of one very important truth, Um, and that is that in giving these evidences of a true Christian, John is not saying that if you want to become a Christian, if you want to have eternal life, Well, you're going to have to achieve all the things that he lists here in this letter of 1 John. No, he's saying the evidence that you are a Christian, that Christ has invaded your life, um, is you have a genuine friendship with Jesus, and, um, uh, and, and the trajectory of your life is to live um, like Jesus, not perfectly, of course, but the direction and passion of your life is to love and to live like Jesus. And so, with that in mind, would you stand and join me in reading our scripture lesson for today? For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know we have passed from death to life because we have love for each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray right now that you um, very much would visit each one of us as we open up our hearts to you and our minds to you to understand more fully what your word says. And I pray that you would give us the will, the courage to respond in the way that you would have us to, to be who you want us to be, to do what you want us to do. For I pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. This last week in the last message of our By Design series, I pointed out that there is no greater longing in the heart of a person than to love and to be loved. And if you think about it, you know, we see evidence of this in the, in the uh, world of arts. Uh, we see it in the songs that many people listen to. We see it in the movies that they watch. Uh, most of these songs and movies, if you think about it, focus on the pursuit of love or the, uh, and or the heartbreak of losing love. Now, where does this human condition come from? Well, Christians believe that we have this longing within because according to Genesis 1.26, we are created in the image of God. And God is love. We see that one chapter over in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. It says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. God is not just loving. He is loving, but he's not just that. He is love. It's his very nature. His character is love. Now, back in the 80s, when I was in my 20s, just a little while ago, um, there were a lot of hit songs on love, like Endless Love and uh, Tina Turney's What's Love Got to Do With This? But... Um, 
the number one song in that decade was, I want to know what love is, <laughs> by, uh, <laughs> by a group uh, called Foreigner. Totally foreign to me even back then, but nevertheless, I like the song. Back then, people were confused about what love is. And people continue to be confused what love is today. And as long as they ignore God and his word, the scriptures, they will continue to be confused about what love is. Well, in the scripture passage that we just read together, the Apostle John brings clarity to the confusion about love by focusing on two major themes. The essence of love, or in other words, what love is, the definition of love, and the effect of love, or what kind of impact love, when we love, has. So let's start with the essence of love. The majority of what we're speaking about today is going to be around this particular subject. What is love? What love is? Now, part of the confusion around the meaning of love stems uh, from the English language. In English, there's only one word for love. And so a woman, for example, can say, I love my husband and I love chocolate in the same sentence. And depending on how she says it, you may be left wondering which of the two she has more affection for. <laughs> now, the original language of the New Testament uh, is Greek. And the Greek language is much more helpful because it has several words for love. There is storge, which is the love that you have for your family. There is eros, which is a sexual romantic love that you have for your spouse. And there is phileo, which is a friendship love between uh, the closest of friends. Now, I want you to notice that all of those three describe a person's feelings of love for another person and therefore cannot be forced. For example, you can't command someone to like a person or to have romantic feelings for someone. Well, I suppose you can, but it's not going to work. You can't make someone like someone else. And so here in our scripture passage, when John says in verse 11, we should love one another, he's not commanding us to like others necessarily, the way that we like a close friend or a close family member. No, he's using a different word for love here. He's using the word agape. Agape love is a godly love. It is a decision to love someone, even when we don't necessarily like that person or feel that that person deserves to be loved. And John goes on to illustrate what this agape or this godly love is. And he begins in verse 12 describing what agape isn't. This is what it says. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now we read about the story of Cain and Abel in Genesis chapter 4. We aren't given very much information, but we're told that they were the sons of Adam and Eve. And we have good reason to believe that they grew up in the same environment 
and they were taught the same values. Both of them knew God, and one day we're told both of them came to worship God, each of them bringing an offering to him. Abel's offering was accepted by God, and Cain's offering was not. In Hebrews 11, verse 4, we're told that Abel's offering was accepted because he brought it by faith. Which means Abel brought his offering in obedience to what God had asked. Which implies that Cain didn't bring his offering in the way that God had asked. He did what so many people are doing today. He didn't come to God on God's terms. He came to God on his terms. It appears he did what people have done down through history right up to our day today, and that is rather than worshiping and following the God who is, He devised his own religion, his own way, his own plan to serve God. All that to say, there was something on the inside of Abel that led God to approve his offering, and there was something going on inside of Cain that led God to disapprove his offering. And it says Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And if you read the passage carefully, nowhere does God compare Cain with Abel. Nowhere does he say something like, Cain, you know, if you were more like Abel, well, you'd be acceptable to me. God's not into comparing. You know, if he gives you grace, there's lots of grace that's available for me too. You know, it's not like there's just so much. And if he gives you, then I have to compete with you because, oh my goodness, you got more grace than I've got. No, God doesn't work like that. God talks to Cain about Cain, about the state of his own heart. And he asks him in verse six, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. That's referring to our enemy, friends. It desires to have you. But you must rule over it. God says to him, Cain, restoration is possible. You can turn this around. The rebellious spirit that you have inside of you can be reversed. Our relationship can be restored. Things can be made right, but you have to decide to do this. But Cain didn't listen. He refused to accept God's evaluation of the state of his heart. He was angry because God would not play according to his rules. In other words, he wanted to be God himself. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to do what he wanted to do. Folks, that's a definition of sin. And that is the problem behind most of the hurt, pain, and evil that goes on in our world. We want to do what we want to do. He caved into his pride. 
listen to the deceptive voice of his enemy, the devil, and he ended up killing his brother Abel. Here in 1 John, verse 12, John asks, why did Cain murder his brother? And he gives the answer. Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. Think about that. Cain murdered his brother not because Abel was a bad character. He murdered his brother because he was a good man. And then notice the sidebar comment that John adds in verse 13. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Do you ever feel, particularly when you kind of watch the media, that Christians just aren't real popular these days? People don't generally look at us with a lot of fondness. This is really what John's getting at. He's saying in this life, there will be those who just simply won't like you. In fact, they may resist you and speak negatively about you simply because they don't like what you stand for as a follower of Christ. William Barclay says, an evil man will instinctively hate a good man. Righteousness always provokes hostility in the minds of those whose actions are evil. Even if a godly person never says a word, his life passes a silent judgment, and for that very reason, the world will often hate him. Now, Ray Stedman says, one of the sobering things about this story is that most likely Cain was not aware of the fact that he hated his brother to the extent of being willing to murder him. He probably was aware that he disliked his brother and was envious of him, but he likely felt no different nor did he have any sense that by not dealing with his anger and his hatred, he was actually giving permission to Satan at a strategic moment in time to take control temporarily and turn his anger and hate into murderous rage toward Abel. The same thing happened to Judas the night he betrayed Jesus. And make no mistake, folks, the same thing can happen to us when we ignore, don't deal with bitter hatred, envy, and resentment in our lives. When we sense anger welling up inside of us or envy or or, or contempt towards someone, we need to see it as a warning light. Something is wrong. Ignore it like Cain did, and serious trouble is ahead. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, where Jesus says this, You have heard that it was said to people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Jesus gives us two alarms here, two ways that sinful anger can get a foothold and escalate 
to something as terrible as murder. First of all, anger is sinful when we suppress it for a long period of time. When we pretend all is well, but just below the surface there is toxic poison that's just gurgling. Just below the surface, we kind of keep our anger close. We keep our envy warm. We keep nursing it. We keep feeding it rather than letting it die through confession and surrender. Suppressed anger robs us of health and joy. It poisons our attitudes in life. It causes us to become irritable, bitter, and cynical, which in turn causes people to keep their distance from us. Either that or causes other people, our own family, or close friends, other people that we express our anger to, it causes them to begin to think just like we think and to begin to become just like us in terms of their attitudes, their negative attitudes and anger. Sinful anger keeps you focused on the hurt rather than the hope and the healing that we have in Jesus Christ. And you know, it always hurts you more than it does the person that you're upset with. While you're stewing and you're spewing out toxic words to other people and popping antacid pills, the person that you're angry with is sleeping soundly in bed. Ephesians 4.26 says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And so the first alarm that Jesus gives is that we suppress our anger for a long time. The second alarm is we express our anger in a sinful way. Look at verse 22 in Matthew 5. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, or anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now the word Raka is almost untranslatable because it mostly describes a tone of voice, but it means empty. And in today's modern vernacular, it would be like saying you're a worthless son of a motherless goat. That's a Henry Shore translation, but you, you kind of get the point. To call a person raka is to insult their intelligence and their competency. Much like we use the word stupid or idiot today. On the other hand, the word fool comes from the Greek word more, from which we get the word mor moron, 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 yes, moron. You know that awful word, yes, which means to cast doubt about a person's value and moral character. And so what Jesus is getting at here is you can only suppress your anger so long. If you don't deal with it the way God calls us to, it will eventually begin to leak out. And it, it'll start by leaking out behind the scenes through lethal gossip in which you demonize or you take shots at a person or a group of people behind their back, which in the church, of course, leads to growing hostility, division, and disunity. Something that Jesus, who is building his church, by the way, has little tolerance for. It can escalate through sarcastic, rude, and hurtful comments, 
through a toxic email. And of course, it can involve lashing out directly at the person. And of course, we've probably all witnessed that in the workplace, in our families, or perhaps even in our small groups or our church somewhere. Now, to be clear, neither Jesus or the Apostle John are saying that anger is murder or that insulting a person's intelligence, competence, character, and value is murder. What they're saying is sinful anger like this that is not dealt with is murder of the heart. And with Satan's influence can actually escalate to something much worse, including the unthinkable act of murder. John Stott says anger and insults like these are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone. Someone who's in the way of our agenda and our forms of character assassination. Jesus and John are saying to us, when anger, envy, resentment, contempt begins to well up inside of you, see it as a warning light. There's something wrong inside. Needs to be dealt with. They're reminding us that murder doesn't start with your hands. It doesn't start even with a knife or with a gun. Murder starts in your heart. They are also saying that nursing sinful anger publicly or privately insulting someone, demeaning their reputation and character is just as displeasing to God, just as hurtful and damaging to relationships and deserving of judgment as murder is. He warns about the danger of the fires of hell. And John warns us, or at least makes a statement in verse 15 in 1 John 3, that a murderer does not have eternal life residing in him. It's just evidence of that. Now again, that doesn't mean that a murderer can't come to a place where he humbles himself and puts his trust and faith in Jesus and asks for forgiveness. Um, that doesn't mean that he's lost eternally. But what Jesus and John are getting at here is if you have hatred in your heart like this, sustained hatred, and you refuse to let it go, it shows that you never have truly understood or embraced the grace and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. In other words, you've got some spiritual work to do. You've got to sort out where you really stand with God and whether your trust is really in him and whether you've received his grace. Now, to be clear, when we're hurt, when we are angry because of a situation that's happened, we may all walk in darkness for a while. I have walked in darkness for periods of time because of hurt that has come my way and because of some anger that's boiled up within me. And we may listen to Satan and his lies and his condemnation and become his instrument and his voice piece for a period of time. That's serious business, folks. There's damage that can come from that. But you see, John implies here that true Christians see it for what it is, and they don't stay in darkness. They don't hold on to their anger and their envy and their contempt very long, in large part 
Because in their daily interaction, in their time with Jesus, he will bring this to their attention in very loving but firm way. And they're not going to be able to continue this relationship with Jesus very long without coming to the place where they just say, you know, enough already. And they humble themselves and they take steps toward the light and they make things right with God and also with the person that they're upset with. They won't suppress it. They won't let their anger hurt their family. You know, sometimes parents, be careful what you talk about around your kitchen table. There are young ears that are listening in. And sometimes the attitudes of our adult children stem from conversations we had around the dinner table. Our attitudes about the church, attitudes about all kinds of things. So they're not going to suppress their anger. They're not going to, uh, you know, kind of let it spew out to family members or to friends. No, they're going to agree with Jesus. What it is, it's hatred. They're going to confess it to God. And they're going to be set free from it. John says Christ followers don't go the way of Cain. Rather, they go the way of Christ. So you have a choice, the way of Cain. We just looked at it. He says Christ followers, they go the way of Christ when it comes to loving others. Look at verse 16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Some of you may remember the song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Uh, That's ancient. There's all kinds of newer songs. There's lots of music out there. There's lots of speeches. There's lots of sermons. There's lots of art forms that talk about what this world needs is more love. And that's fine. But what's important is we need to realize that agape love isn't having warm and fuzzy feelings for someone. It isn't feeling sorry for someone. It isn't tears of sadness streaming down our cheeks and and crying as we listen to songs or we sing songs that, oh man, we need more love in our world. Now, of course, feeling compassion for someone is a good thing, but it's not the kind of love that's being talked about here. Agape love isn't about what you feel. It isn't even about what you say. Agape love is something you do. Agape love is a decision to take action despite feelings. Jesus laid down his life for us. Over in chapter 4, verse 9, we read this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. God didn't just tell us that he loved us. 
He demonstrated his love for us by giving up what was incredibly precious to him, his only son, Jesus. Now, I like the definition of love that Brian Wilkerson has come up with based on this passage here in 1 John, some of his thoughts around it. This is his definition based on 1 John 3. Love is giving yourself for the good of others even for those with whom you have differences. So let's break that down a little bit. First of all, he says, love is giving of yourself. Love isn't just being friendly or being a nice person. That's wonderful, but it's not enough. It's giving something personal, something precious, something of yourself. God gave his son Jesus gave his life. In verse 17, John gives a very practical example. He writes, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother and sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech but with actions and truth. So how do you feel after you've just heard that read? Do you feel the weight Oh my goodness, what does that mean for me? What does that mean? Well, let's be sure we know exactly what he's saying here. I want you to notice that John talks about brothers and sisters in need. He's referring to our spiritual brothers and sisters in the church. People that we know, people whose character, whose background, and whose circumstances or situation we're familiar with. While we should love all people and be open to meeting the needs of people outside of the church that God brings our way or the needs of people that we become aware of in other nations uh, through our missionaries and also through our global partners, here in this passage, John is specifically talking about meeting the legitimate needs of those who are part of our local church. He basically says, if you're aware of a need and you have the means to meet that need, or even part of that need, you will act on that need. You'll take a risk. You'll invest your time, or you'll invest your money. You'll give something of yourself. If you don't, you need to ask yourself, have I been transformed by the love of God? So first of all, love is giving of yourself. Secondly, loving, loving, love is giving of yourself for the good of others. Wilkerson reminds us that Jesus didn't lay down his life just to prove how loving and devoted he was. He laid down his life for us to pay for our sins so we could be forgiven. Look at 1 John 4.10. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We may not die for another person, but we can live for others. We can voluntarily take the focus off ourselves and put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Suppose you meet a person that's new to our church, new to our city. Let's say it's their first day in this city. 
they happen to come to our church, you have a conversation with them, you invite them to have coffee with you, and during that time of sharing, you discover that they're short of money and they need lodging for the night. Now, if you pay for them to stay in a hotel for a night or you feel that you've gotten to know them and to trust them enough to actually bring them to your home for them to stay overnight. But you do that to relieve your guilt or to show others how compassionate you are. John would say, that's not agape love. You see, God is very concerned about our attitudes, folks, our motivations, much more than our actions. Love isn't about you. It's about the other person and doing something good for them. You know, in the story of the Good Samaritan, I recall reading somewhere that the difference between the two religious leaders who passed by the wounded traveler and the Good Samaritan who stopped and took care of the wounded traveler is when the religious leaders saw the wounded traveler on the road, they were likely asking themselves, what will, help, what will helping this man cost me in terms of money and time? And they didn't like the answer to that, so they just kept walking. While the good Samaritan, when he came upon this broken man on the, on the road, the question he likely asked was, if I don't stop and help this man, what will it cost him? in terms of his health, his life, his family, and his future. Oxford professor and author C.S. Lewis, he writes this, it is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everyone. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. He says, loving everyone in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. But having said that, loving like this is something that we have to grow in. The thought of paying for the legitimate but significant expense of someone that we know who's fallen on hard times may be overwhelming. But perhaps we can take a step of faith and make a contribution to that expense, an amount that we would still consider to be sacrificial. Loving others might be offering to take care of, ch of the children of a couple who can never afford to go out and just paying for them to enjoy a, an evening and a meal together. The thought of having someone in need of lodging, even someone we know staying with us for a night or two or perhaps a week or two while they're in some kind of transition may just seem totally overwhelming. But perhaps we can start by having them over for a meal or even providing them with a meal. See, essentially, love, loving others is about serving others. 1 Peter 4.10 reads, Each of you should use whatever gift you've received to serve others 
as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. So a person who sits down with a group of children and encourages them, listens to them and their prayer requests, and then prays for them, and then helps them to understand a story in the Bible, that person is loving those children. The person who walks beside youth in the same way is loving those youth. The family that invites members of our spiritual family um, you know, whether married or unmarried, whether old or young, around their dinner table, or to join their community group, is loving those people. The person who invests one, two, three hours or more on a weekend to join others in our church, to help us be ready for company, help us to be ready for reaching out to people who are new, who are lonely, who are lost, and they wander into one of our campuses, and helps to make them feel welcome and safe and able to hear God's word taught. That person is loving others. The point is, step out and start loving others in small ways. Send someone an encouragement note. Pick someone up who needs a ride to church or to an appointment. And as you begin to do the little things over time, as you sense God growing you in what it means to love others, he will call upon you to love others in greater ways. And don't be afraid of that. Because as you begin to love the way Jesus loves you, the more you get into that, the closer you're going to get to Jesus but you're, the more you're going to experience a new level of joy and fulfillment as well. So first, love is giving yourself. Second, it's giving of yourself for the good of others. And thirdly, love is giving of yourself for, for the good of others, even for those with whom you have difference. We don't like this one too much. The amazing thing about God's love and his grace is that he extends it even to people who want little or nothing to do with him. Romans 5.8 reminds us that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet in a state of rebellion against Christ, he made a way for us to be made spiritually alive and right with God. He died for us all, even while we were yet sinners. And the point is we don't get to choose who we love. We're not called to love only those who like us or who agree with us. We're called to love those who are different from us, who may even be actively against us, people who feel like enemies. Last time I touched on Luke 6, where Jesus kind of addresses that feeling, that attitude. And he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And then he adds this. But love your enemies. Do good to them. Think of your enemy for a moment. Now I know that Christians, they like to think they don't have any enemies. And so think of the person you like the least. I figure we, you know, you can all figure that one out. Now if it were in your power to help that person prosper enormously. 
in their career, their finances, in their relationships, in their relationship with God. Would you do it? See, that gets at the heart of what Jesus is getting at here. If you want to know what it means to love those who feel like enemies, put yourself in their shoes. Treat them as you would like to be treated is what Jesus says here in Luke 6. Or how about this? Treat them how you would want them to treat your loved ones. For example, before you email someone or talk to someone, ask yourself, if one of my loved ones were to receive an email with the same spirit as this, or would be talked to with the same attitude and spirit as I'm thinking of, would I still send this email? Would I still communicate to this person with the same attitude and spirit that I feel justified to? Put another way, is what I'm communicating and how I'm communicating the way I would want others to communicate to me or to my loved ones? And agape love treats others the way that they would want to be treated. If your enemy is successful, then congratulate him. If your enemy needs help or support, go to their aid. If hurtful, mean, angry words are spoken to you, do not retaliate by treating them, but, but do good to them by treating them with respect and honor. If your enemy is someone who has views and convictions that are contrary to yours and isn't belligerent about it, you know, doesn't want to just pick a fight or argue for the sake of arguments, but they're sincere, then do good to them and seek sincerely to understand their point of view. You know, there are essential doctrines of the Christian faith. When you look at the statement of faiths of most churches and, and, and so forth, those are essential doctrines that the Bible speaks to clearly and definitively. But there are other themes the Bible doesn't address fully or clearly. And as a result, after careful study, godly, Bible-believing Christians come to different conclusions about them. And they come to different conclusions because the Bible isn't as clear on some of these subjects These topics are important, but they're not central to the gospel and to the Christian faith. And therefore, even though we may not agree with one another on some of these, they should not divide us or be the cause to break fellowship with one another. Even more important, or more so, we may not agree with one another about worship styles, there's an ongoing hot potato. Uh, what the budget priority should be of the church. How we can reach our city and our world most effectively. What the best strategy is for discipling our youth and our children. And a host of other issues that are important to us, but again, they are not central 
to the gospel and therefore should not divide us or cause us to break fellowship with one another. Godly love allows for disagreement, but not division. Proverbs 6 verse 19 says, the Lord hates, detests a false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. A truly loving person will not allow disagreement on secondary issues to give them license to stir up dissension and controversy and division and disunity in the church. I remind you folks that it is not Henry Shore or any other person on this staff or in this church who is building this church. It is Jesus Christ who is building this church. And he does not take lightly when because of our own little issues and so forth, we stir up dissension. In the same way the Holy Trinity is one, so the body of Christ is one. Jesus' famous prayer in John 17 was that his followers and his church would be one. The Apostle Paul made a strong case in Galatians chapter 3.28 and Colossians 3.11 that we are all one in Jesus Christ. On the essential things that the Bible is very clear on, and that's basically the gospel. We must have unity. But in those areas that are not central to the gospel and our faith, the areas that the Bible, uh, that we see, as the scriptures say, through a glass darkly, in these matters we must have liberty and extend love and grace to one another and not make it central. Folks, the thing that has to be central in our lives and in our church is that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that is the essence of love or what love is. And so we move on to the second point. John finishes chapter three talking about the effect of love. And he spells out two ways that loving others impacts our lives. We're going to look at them quickly. So just relax. We're almost there, okay? But they're so wonderful. Like, when I read this and studied it, my heart was just warmed. I'm so excited to share this with you. First of all, when we exercise agape love, it proves that we are children of God that Christ resides in us. It gives us assurance of our salvation. Like the Christians in the early church, all of us, I'm sure, wonder at times if we're really Christians. When we look at the amount of attention we give to God, when we look at the attitudes and the lack of love we have toward others, especially after a sermon like this and the scripture that we've looked at like this, when we look at our generosity, when we look at our service to God and to others, I'm sure you will agree that we all have moments when we wonder if we're Christians at all. In John's words here in verse 20, our hearts condemn us. So how can we be assured we are true Christians? Well, most importantly, of course, we need to reestablish our faith in the truth of God's word and our belief in Jesus Christ. We need to go to God 
and remind ourselves that we are justified not by our works, but by our faith in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for us on the cross of Calvary. And as a result, we are in Christ and he is in us. And Romans 8 assures us that there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And folks, that is the gospel and upon which the assurance of our salvation rests. But I want you to notice in the passage that John points out an additional way that we can be assured of our faith. Look at verse 14. He says, we know we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Now look, verse 18 and 19. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. When we love from the heart, the way we're loved by Christ, we can know we are his. You see, when we embrace Christ as Savior and Lord, we see things differently. We see through a new set of, 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 of lenses. We have a new worldview. We have a new perspective. We now have an eternal perspective. We see things through the supernatural and not just the natural. We are a new creation. The old is gone. It's been put on Christ. The new has come. His righteousness is upon us. And one of the major things that changes in our lives is we see people differently. We begin to see them the way that Jesus sees them. We begin to be more aware of the needs of others around us. And the longer that we walk with Jesus, the more we put the interests of others ahead of ourselves. And John essentially says here, every time you say no to the way of Cain and you say yes to the way of Jesus in the way that you love, It's a clear reminder that you're a child of God. That's the first powerful effect of loving others. The second effect of loving others is that it empowers and transforms our prayer life. Look at verse 21. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him Anything we ask. The person whose heart does not condemn them is a person who's not looking at himself at all. It's a person who instead is looking at the greatness and the majesty of God, is surrendered to God, is living in total dependence upon him, and is walking and talking with him each day. That's essentially what prayer is. A lot of people think that Christianity is boring because they miss the daily adventure of asking God each day to show us where and in whom he is at work and to use us in whatever way he would have us. 
They miss the daily adventure of praying without ceasing, where we invite God to do life with us, asking him for wisdom when we need it, asking him for strength and power when we need that, for help in, in difficult conversations, and seeing him do things in us and through us and in our circumstances and in the lives of other people that we could never pull off in our own strength. And John says here in verse 21 and 22, when you live all out for God, when, you, when he's the object of your highest affection, and when you make love your highest aim in life, you can ask God in prayer for anything that is in line with his kingdom purposes, anything that will help you love people more effectively, and you will receive it. Now again, some people read this one line, that we will receive from God anything we ask and they take it totally out of context. You know, sometimes people say to me, you know, the Bible says it, so I'm not going to dispute it or question it. But there is a context in which things are said. So what is the context of you can receive from God anything you ask? John's talking about loving like Jesus. James says, you do not receive what you ask for. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives. So let me be clear. John is not saying here that you're going to receive anything you ask for that is selfish, that's focused on getting more stuff, advancing your ego, your agenda, or your portfolio. But remember the context here. But you will receive anything that advances God's kingdom purposes. Anything you need, personally or otherwise, that will help you to love the way that Christ loves you. And I don't know about you, but that really excites me. When I'm engaged in God's kingdom purposes, when I'm seeking to love others to Jesus and to show them the love of Jesus in practical ways, if that is the motive and the attitude of my heart, then I can boldly and freely go to Jesus at any time every day and ask him to provide what I need and I will receive it. That is the effect and that is the power of love, friends. And so I pray that we will commit ourselves anew to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, our soul, our mind and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you please stand? So we're out of time, but I'm going to have you take these two questions with you. Take it with you as you go to your car. Take it with you as you reflect this week on what you've heard today and what you've read from the scriptures. What is God saying to you? And what is he asking you to do about it? And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you 
his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord be with you. There are people here who would love to pray with you before you go. If you have a prayer need, by all means come and they'd love to pray with you.